Welcome to a great day for hockey talk with your host, Paul Steigerwald. Paul Steigerwald standing by with a special guest. And let's go down the ladder right now and join him. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. I'm Paul Steigerwald, and it is my pleasure to have uh, spent uh, 45 minutes or so discussing the career of Eddie Olchek with Edzo himself. And I think you're really going to enjoy this long conversation. It starts with uh, you know his career here in Pittsburgh, but also his broadcasting career, his time as a coach here in Pittsburgh, and the challenges he faced with colon cancer. I mean, I can't stress enough what a great guy Edzo is. What you see is what you get. Everyone that he comes in contact with just thinks he's the greatest guy. He's such a nice person. He makes you feel good when you're in his presence, like you matter to him. And it goes all the way back to my first encounter with him as a broadcaster when I interviewed him between periods at a game in Winnipeg many, many years ago. I knew right away this was a special human, as he likes to say. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this. I'm not going to give you his whole background of his career other than to say he played 16 seasons in the National Hockey League. He could score goals. He was drafted third overall behind Mario Lemieux and Kirk Muller in 1984, an American-born player from Chicago, Illinois, who had the career he had and who has had the profile he has had in the National Hockey League. That's something special in and of itself. So enjoy my conversation with the great Edzo. Let's start with uh, your relationship with the Penguins. It began with you um, as a player. Could you talk about when you came to the Penguins as a player and what that was like? How did that happen, too, by the way? Yeah, well, it was uh, at the trade deadline of uh, of '96. Um, you know, '96, uh, sorry, '96, '97 season, and I had signed a free agent contract with uh, the LA Kings, and and you know, we were having a tough time out west, and I uh, really did not hear my name at all in any trade rumors or any speculation at all. Um, you know, to be moved out of L.A. And, you know, next thing you know, uh, my, uh, you know, my buddy Dominic is uh, uh, a lifelong friend and uh, a legend amongst the hockey community, always traveling with me around. And uh, Dom was in L.A. And hit about, uh, you know, we pushed back practice that day because of the time change and the three-hour deadline and uh, the three o'clock Eastern deadline. So we didn't have practice, I think, until two o'clock Pacific. And, we were getting ready to leave for practice, and it's like 10 after 12, and Dom says, hey, you didn't get traded. And then the phone rings at the house. And, of course, the 90, you know, 96, 97, Staggy, I, I didn't have a cell phone. I mean, I don't know who did, but I didn't. And uh, the phone, it rings at the house, and it's uh, Sam McMaster, our general manager, and he told me that uh, we just traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins, and uh, Craig Patrick will be getting a hold of you. And, you know, and I have known Craig forever it seemed uh, from my days with USA hockey and of course Craig with the 80, 80 Olympic team and myself on the 84 team. So uh, that's how we became a Pittsburgh penguin. And uh, Glenn Murray went from, uh, from the penguins to uh, LA and uh, I came to Pittsburgh and uh, the rest is history. And it's a pretty interesting history because I think if that trade doesn't happen, your life's completely different. I mean, you end up yeah. in Pittsburgh where a lot of, a lot of good things happen for you that kind of led you down a different path, but you did get here late that season, 97. That happened yeah. to be the year Mario retired the first right. time. So do you remember right. what that was like? I think you played 12 games at the end of that yeah. season. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty, I mean, it, it was, you know, I mean, it was pretty, uh, I mean, it was pretty inspiring, obviously, to come to a team and obviously, you know, getting drafted with, uh, with, uh, with Mario the same year and, and, and knowing, you know, what he had been through both, on and off the ice and, and coming there and, you know, de developing a relationship with him and with uh, the great Ronnie Francis, uh, you know, y Yags was here. Uh, so, I mean, there were some Tommy, Tommy Barrasso who I knew. So, I mean, there were, you know, uh, so many uh, guys that I had either, you know, crossed paths with or played with or uh, admired as a, as a hockey player. So to come here, you're right, Staggy. Uh, it opened up, uh, you know, another avenue uh, down the road that you know that I didn't know that was going to be there. But to get the opportunity to come here and, like I said, knowing Craig, um, you know, I think that uh, you know, it just 
it, it worked out. Maybe it didn't work on, out in the hockey aspect of it um, because I certainly enjoyed playing here and uh, putting on the Penguin uniform, but uh, it certainly opened up the doors to uh, some other great chapters in my life. Well, things changed dramatically to your first year, a full season with the Penguins, because Kevin Constantine came in, and right. he was the coach, and the whole style of the team changed. Was that a tough adjustment for you to have to deal with Mario being gone? And I know Ronnie was here, and you said Yags and Tom Barrasso and Marty Straka, and there were a lot of good hockey players that played uh, that year under Kevin, but what was it like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I, I was in – it was a kind of a transition time in my career, Saggy. I mean, I, I go back to when I left Winnipeg uh, for the first time back in uh, the 92-93 season where, you know, I had come off of five straight years of scoring 30-plus goals in the NHL. So from 87 to 92-93, uh, the 92 season, I guess I should say, from 87 to the 92 season, I'd scored 30-plus goals for five straight seasons, and there was only seven players in the NHL that had done that for five years. And some of the names on that list, of course, were Lemieux and Hull and Gretzky and Robitaille and Eiserman and Gartner, and uh, somehow I ended up on that list. And, you know, I, I had the ability to put the puck in the back of the net, but once I got to New York, uh, kind of seemed like individually or personally – you know, my career came to a screeching halt, and I, I could really just kind of never get back on track. Uh, I did when I got traded back to Winnipeg after my quick stint in New York and winning a Stanley Cup in 94. But, uh, you know, I just – when I got to Pittsburgh, I mean, Craig gave me a great opportunity. I played. I played a lot. Uh, had an impact, uh, you know, in, in, in a, as a role player, and, you know, whether it had a – a shift with uh, with Mario or have a shift with Ronnie Francis or have a shift with Ian Moran and Tyler Wright. I mean, you know, it, it didn't matter. I mean, I, I knew what my role was. And then when Kevin Constantine came in, I mean, he had his mind made up on whatever role that I was going to have. So it was a very, very difficult season. Uh, I got put on waivers, I think, that year at one point. Uh, I had a young family. So it certainly was uh, a difficult season, made it through. Uh, then eventually worked my way back home to Chicago where they signed me to a couple of one-year deals and then eventually retired in 2000. So, um, But, you know, look, I, I played for many a coaches over my career, and uh, there were some guys that appreciated what I couldn't do and what I could do and uh, understood what, I, what my strengths and what my weaknesses were. And some coaches just had the ability. And, look, it happens in all walks of life. It's just not hockey is that somebody's going to paint you with a brush and, uh, you know, your, your, your fate is pretty much sealed even before you do anything. So uh, disappointed that they didn't get an opportunity, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the real world. So we just we learned from it and moved on. And, uh, but that, you know, that first full season in the Berg was, uh, you know, was pretty difficult. Uh, but the last couple of years, I think, kind of helped prepare me for uh, what was ahead. It's, it's amazing to me, and it always has been amazing to me in hockey, how you could score goals, and that's a very hard thing to do. And yet yeah. coaches tend to sometimes focus on the things you can't do and not realize right. that the right. one thing you right. can is put the puck in the net, which a lot of people would pray and they would maybe sell their soul to the devil to be able yeah. to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I learned that when – you know, and I'm going ahead a little bit here, Staggy, but I think I learned that when I became the coach of the Penguins and sitting in on those meetings with Craig and with our with our you know coaching staff and our management staff. And I think it's the one thing that I, I'd like to think it's starting to weed itself out because of the rule changes, and I think that certainly has something to do with it. But the old school of thought is, you know, teams looking at players that they have or maybe players they're looking to acquire, and, you know, their mindset would be, Ah, well, this guy ain't tough enough, you know, he doesn't score, he doesn't hit. He doesn't, well, okay, well, hold on a second. Well, what the hell can he do? <laughs> like, and then it's, up to, then it's up to us as an organization or a coaching staff to put this player in a situation where he can have success. And whether it's a goal scorer, whether it's a tough guy, whether it's a defender, uh, regardless of what it is, but I, I do think that the train of thought has changed, but – it's something that I, I took to heart because I lived it as a player. It was like, okay, yeah, yeah, we, we have Rico Fada or we have Constantine Kolstov or we have Dick Tarnstrom. 
Yeah, okay. Every, I haven't, there are very few players, Daggy, and you know this as well as anybody, especially here in the Berg or throughout the National Hockey League. There have been very few perfect players <laughs> ever to play in the National Hockey League. There have been, pretty, there's been some close ones, Yep. no doubt, and one of them wore 66 here in the Berg. I, I know that. But it, most players that have ever come through the National Hockey League or the Pittsburgh Penguins, they've all had holes, they've all had blemishes. So it's up to the team and the coach to put those guys in a situation where they can help uh, figure out who and what the hell your players are before the rest of the hockey league does, and you'll be in a good place. So, you know, you're right. It, it's, uh, I think it's, it was an older school mentality. I think it's changed a bit because of the rule changes. Now you have, you know, really small guys playing in a national hockey league where 25 years ago there was no chance that, you know, teams would, would even give – smaller players in the National Hockey League today an opportunity because they just didn't think that they could survive. But, uh, look, you've got some of the best players in the league are a little bit, you know, are slight. Uh, Johnny Gaudreau. Think of Johnny Johnny Gaudreau. Right, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, so, you know, the game has changed, and, and, you know, the way we think has changed, I hope. But there is no doubt that what you're talking about certainly uh, resonates with with me and and going through my 16 years and, uh, and what I think the greatest league in the world. So, Edzo, you go back to Chicago, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but it is, yeah. uh, to me, a really interesting aspect of, of your whole career is that you came from Chicago. And, you know, just, I mean, today we have a lot of kids from the U.S. coming from, you know, from Scottsdale, Arizona. But, I mean, back then that was not the case. So you were sort of a pioneer, I would say. Well, I, I'd like to think so, Staggy. Uh, you know, yeah, there weren't a lot of, uh, there weren't a lot of uh, young Chicago kids uh, born and bred that uh, – thought about going to the National Hockey League, let alone playing hockey in the suburbs of Chicago. So, I mean, I had the opportunity. And once I got put on a pair of skates when I was six and a half years old, I was hooked. I was hook, line, and sinker. And uh, I enjoyed, you know, growing up as a kid and playing games. And I played baseball in the offseason. That's one thing that uh, my dad uh, emphasized to me as as a young kid is that, you know, Play, play all sports, you know, like my dad wanted me to play football, but I wasn't tough enough to play football, but I love baseball and I would play baseball for three, four months at a time in the summer and the spring and would get away from hockey for a period of time until hockey became, you know, 13 months a year when I turned 13 or 14. But uh, I, you're right. Uh, not a lot of kids came from uh, the state of Illinois, let alone the suburbs of Chicago. And I was very, very lucky to be, you know, one of those uh, first guys, uh, Chris Chelios, no question, uh, the greatest American-born hockey player ever to play in the National Hockey League, in my opinion, and a guy that uh, was a Chicago guy himself and, uh, and obviously has had an amazing career. But uh, it, uh, it gave me uh, everything I have. I owed this game of hockey, and I started as a young kid growing up in Chicago. Well, you're a man of great personality, and there's no question that that's a big reason why you are where you are today. And I can remember interviewing you in Winnipeg between periods, and you came in with that. <laughs> just you were so you were just so affable and so uh, easy to talk to, and a great interview. And I used to tell Mike Lang every now and then, hey, "Boy, that guy, he has a future in broadcasting if he wants, because he's really." Good. And you just had that written all over you. Let's talk about Eddie Olchek. He doesn't get a lot of credit as much as. Uh... Uh, some people, sh- you know, should give him. Uh, uh, and yourself, what, what do you think about Eddie? He's got one. And of don't the, be brief either. He's got one of the loudest voices in the National Hockey League. Now let's talk about his play, though. I mean, we know he's a good guy and he's a great family guy and he likes to bet on the horse. It doesn't make him a bad guy, though. Well, his play, he plays great music on the bus. Uh, he's, oh yeah, he uh, likes disco. Loves disco. Uh, disco Inferno is one. Shake his booty. Shakes his booty as well as anybody in hockey. He's got a big booty too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> that? Somebody have a little fun, you're making fun of my rump. Edmar Foods, what do you mean? I got a lot of pierogies there. Uh, so, I don't know if you know this, Edzo, but we uh, were looking for a new color analyst in Pittsburgh, and I remember being in a meeting, I think it was myself, Mike Lang was there, it was Paul Kasuth, who was a producer at the time, I believe Jane yeah. Adair, who was in charge of FSN at the time, and I, I think I chimed in, Mike and I both kind of chimed in to say, you got to see if you can get Eddie Olchek, he would be unbelievable. Yeah. Is that how I, I was trying to, and I was trying to remember how you ended up. Like, had you already had some broadcast experience when you came to Pittsburgh, yeah. or was that? Yeah. yeah. How what, yeah. how did we know that you were so good already? I mean, I think yeah, I would have. Well, I, I appreciate that, Staggy, and yeah, that that's exactly what happened. I know that you guys had uh, 
throwing my name out there and, uh, you know, the so-called rest is history, as I said earlier. But, you know, I, I had been doing uh, some TV work for uh, ESPN uh, when uh, I was knocked out of the playoffs, whether I was in Winnipeg or with the Blackhawks. So ESPN had hired me to do some games. I also was doing uh, NHL radio on Westwood One. Uh, I would do some playoff games there and was ended up doing like the conference finals. And so, I mean, I had had broadcasting uh, experience when it came to the hockey part of it. But a lot of people don't know this, Daggy, is that uh, I actually got my start in television in the lockout of 1994. So I'm in New York with the Rangers. We just won the Stanley Cup. And the next year we had a work stoppage. And I actually think I had a hat trick, a preseason hat trick against the Penguins here in the Berg. And, you know, I was feeling good. I hadn't played a lot the year before. We won the Cup. There were a lot of changes and was really looking forward to the season. I had a great training camp. And, you know, then we went on, you know, then we had the work stoppage. So, as everybody knows, uh, and if you don't know, I guess I'm uh, I'm, uh, I'm leading you into the story, is that... Um, you know, I'm a big horse racing guy. Always have been, always uh, always will be. And the people at the Meadowlands Racetrack were big Ranger fans. And winning the Stanley Cup, I brought the Stanley Cup to the Meadowlands in East Rutherford, New Jersey, and uh, had a little bit of a party there. And we had the work stoppage. So the people at the Meadowlands Racetrack, Staggy, called me and said, hey, you're not working. You know, why don't you come handicap the races for us until you go <laughs> back to work? And I'm like, you're going to pay me to come to the racetrack? I'm like, this is like the, like the greatest thing in the world. Like, you're going to pay me $800 a day. And they probably knew it was just going to go right back to the windows anyways. But, you know, <laughs> so I, that's how I got my start in television. So I worked with a lady by the name of Barbara Foster. She was my partner uh, at the Meadowlands. We were doing the thoroughbred meet, and I would handicap each race, and then we would do the wrap, wrap-up report on Sports Channel uh america after and you know so that's how i got my introduction to television and you know push the clock some 20 years later i get the job with nbc and then i'm doing horse racing and the triple crown so uh i think that you know yeah the penguins knew that you know the relationship obviously playing here and then doing the games on television for espn and radio on nhl radio but also I actually got my start in, uh, in broadcasting and television at the, at the racetrack. And it was so cool because when you became the color analyst of the Penguins, uh, at that time the Penguins were in need of uh, a little extra juice uh, on the telecast. The team wasn't great, uh, as I recall. I'm trying to remember what year it was, but at any event – uh, there were some some good times and some bad times, but the, what I remember most is that you became a pretty popular color analyst by virtue of having a really good relationship with the fans at the arena. Remember, you used to did we call it the Ed? Was it called the Ed Zone? What did we call that? Yeah, cir- circle circle me Ed Zone. Well, if you haven't had lunch yet, how about a Subway sandwich of the game? Daniel Lacatour on Patrick Stefan. Shift playing left wing the next. You start running around. This young lady likes how I circle, so you know what? There you go. That's a nice sign. Better, sir. <laughs> uh, yeah, circle me, Edzo was a great thing, and you used to circle with the Telestrator. But you sat in the, I remember a couple of times you even sat in the balcony at the Civic Arena yeah. during the game to, to yeah. do the game, right? Yeah. With the fans, yeah, yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. It was to be, you know, to, to to be around you guys, and obviously you and Mikey being together for such a long time, and then you know you move into the radio, and then me getting the opportunity to get sit next to a legend, and uh, became uh, just uh, just great friends with with the great Mike Lang, and helped me so much in my broadcasting career. And yeah, I mean. You know, we had a lot of fun. I mean, we did. And, you know, let, let's not forget that, you know, that my first year, of course, Mario came back in that amazing game against the Toronto Maple Leafs after Christmas time. And, you know, so, I mean, for me, it was just like it was an incredible run to, to be back in the Berg. And, you know, the team was, uh, you know, the team was on the verge of going to another Stanley Cup final. Mario comes back. And, you know, I remember Casper, I think it was. I think, wasn't it uh, wasn't it Casper that scored that overtime winner? Yeah, football, yeah, yeah. It? Yes, it was. Seven. So, you know, I mean, we had – it was 
like you really felt like you know you you were uh, you became a part of the fabric of the community, and you know we I thought we did just a, a, a great job on the broadcast and not hope not only selling the game and the brand, but you know I mean Mikey and I had a you know we had a stick, and you're right, yeah, sometimes they'd meet out be out in the crowd, and you know, I think we were passing out Twizzlers or Swedish Fish or. <laughs> You know, you're right, circling the fans and just making them, you know, getting them engaged. And uh, it was, uh, it, it really helped, you know, it helped uh, catapult me to my broadcasting career, uh, the full-time opportunity. I'll be forever grateful to, to Mario and to Craig and to Tommy Mack and to, you know, everybody at Fox Sports Pittsburgh and that gave me the chance. And look, I, you know, I commuted from Chicago to Pittsburgh for three years. I wasn't going to move my family again. Uh, because we had bounced around a lot, the kids that wanted some stability at home, so it certainly wasn't easy on my wife, uh, Diana. We just celebrated our 30th uh, wedding anniversary this past August, so it was uh, it wasn't easy, but the team made it very easy, and uh, it was uh, it was a great great time in my life. And uh, maybe when uh, maybe when my book comes out, uh, people will get a chance to, to to read a little bit more into the relationship with with Mikey and uh, how that all kind of really kind of took place uh, here in the bird really really good stuff and you know I, I I don't know how many people have gone from the broadcast booth to behind a bench but I think it happened maybe in baseball but yeah I, I don't basketball know basketball now basketball yeah yeah it's happened it's happened a lot more now Staggy. but you were the uh, first one to do it right yeah <laughs> one, one one of the you know one of the pioneers and look just to take people back like Back in, in, in 03, uh, the Penguins did not have any coaches in the organization. Craig made, you know, complete changes, you know, up and down the organization. And it's something I had thought about. It's something that I had talked about with Craig and Mario, you know, over the course of the time when I was in the Berg. And I knew the situation in the club at the National Hockey League level that, look, you know, didn't know what was going to happen with the team. We were falling on tough times. You know, we were cutting payroll. But I, I wanted to get into the teaching part and the coaching part. And, and when I went in for my first interview with Craig, uh, my mind was set on going to Wilkes-Barre. And I applied for the head coaching job for the American Hockey League and going to Wilkes-Barre Grant. Like, that's how it all started. And one thing led to another. And, you know, and then it became talk about the parent club and, you know, and Craig had never had a head coaching job in his life until he coached the New York Rangers. Uh, yes, Craig was involved in the game, and yes, he was an assistant coach uh, with the Olympic team, obviously, in 1980. But Craig Patrick's first head coaching job wasn't until he got to the National Hockey League. And uh, I think that certainly, you know, played in my favor. Now I look back and go, you know, what would have been best for me and, and how would things have worked out? Uh, yeah, I think about it for sure especially when the Penguins were winning all those Stanley Cups, you know, four or five years shortly after I was coaching. But, you know, I mean, hey, that's the hand that was dealt. But that's how it all started, is I was prepared to go to the American Hockey League and coach in Wilkes-Barre and, uh, and, and, and let things happen from there. But, um, you know, things happen and uh, decisions are made. And, uh, and I wouldn't change uh, – I would not change anything. I, I really wouldn't stag you. Uh, the opportunity that I had, I think, made me a better hockey guy. I think it made me a better broadcaster. Uh, it helped teach me about the game, and you know, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the business of the game, and uh, it's, uh, it's it's a proud it's a proud time of my life uh, to have gone from you know the broadcast booth to behind the bench and, and being around and seeing you know, Mark andre Fleury and, and, uh, and getting a chance to be around Mario and, uh, you know, and, and, and being there when the Penguins drafted Evgeny Malkin and then being there when we won the lottery against Anaheim and, 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 and winning the draft lottery and, and getting a chance to take Sid. So, I mean, there's just so many, so many positives. And, yeah, it, it didn't end anywhere the way that I would have liked and I felt like I'd let Mario down, I'd let Craig down and, Nah. I let the fan base down, but that's the nature of the business, and I understand that. And like I said, I, I've always tried to take the positive in a tough situation. So, but again, I go back to you know when I wanted to get into coaching because I always enjoyed. I always kind of felt like I was a, you know, I had a reputation of uh, of, of taking young guys under my wing and kind of help showing them the way. And I don't want to say being a second coach because that's 
I, I wouldn't want to use that terminology, but I just always tried to, you know, to try to lead and, and, and help nothing easy about playing in a league, but just, you know, try to help guys along. And I think it came to a point where I just, I felt like I had so much more to offer. And like I said, I, my plan was to go to Wilkes-Barre or at least apply for the Wilkes-Barre job. And um, next thing you know, I got the opportunity to, uh, to coach fix Coach and I saw in your uh, interview you did for the 50th anniversary uh, documentary that the Penguins did, you said we were selling hope. And I have yeah. a tremendous recall of uh, how well the team played for you that at the yeah. end of that season, Alexei yeah. Morosov went on a tear. And yeah. th- there was a tremendous amount of pride among those players. They knew that some crazy things were coming. You know, they knew the lockout was coming. They knew that there were going to be severe changes with respect to the Penguins organization, and yet they took some kind of pride in wanting to put their best foot forward, and then you made a speech on the ice. Thank you. Thank you very much. On behalf behalf of the Pittsburgh Penguins, it's great to have the building full, isn't it? Give yourselves a round of applause. On behalf of the players, the coaches, our ownership, led by Mario Lemieux, Craig Patrick, and all the people behind the scenes that, unfortunately for you great people, you don't get a chance to meet. All the people in our ticket office, all the people in our media relations, our training staff, the people that really make this organization go. We'd like to thank you for your support this year. The one thing I am most proud of, the one thing I am most proud of is from day one with Craig and with Mario is we've had a plan. And we've stuck to our plan from day one. All of our young players got an opportunity to play in game one and in game 82. I would also like to thank the entire Penguin organization for making myself and my family feel a great part of this great city again. And we are not only representing The players that are going to come out here and give you the shirts off their backs are not only representing Mario Lemieux and the Pittsburgh Penguins, but they're representing every single one of us that lives in the city of Pittsburgh. And we thank you very much for your support. And so that was sort of in keeping with the fact that you'd been a broadcaster. You, you had this relationship with the fans. Very few guys could do that or would want to do it. You know, we've had we had coaches here that would hide and not even want to be seen on the yeah. ice. You know, and th- but yeah. this was a completely different approach. And I so for you to say you let somebody down is ridiculous because you actually did exactly what it was they wanted you to do. You created this feeling of optimism at the end of that season, going into a horrible time in uh, in NHL history, really. Yeah, well, no, I appreciate that, Staggy. And I think, you know, like, yeah, I, I was there to sell hope. I was there to be the spokesperson. There, there's no doubt about that. I mean, something that. You know, Craig, at times he had to do, but I don't think that Craig wanted to do it. And that was a strength of mine, is to be able to reach out and communicate with the great fan base here in the Berg and Penguin fans all across the world. And I, and I knew that. You're right. I mean, it was about selling hope. Like, we divulged a lot. Like, we didn't divulge everything, but we wanted our fan base to understand where we were, where we are, and where we're trying to get to. And that was a part of my job. And that was a huge part of my job description. And you know, look, it, it, it wasn't easy. You know, that year, uh, you know, we went through, we went 17 games without winning a game. Now, look, granted, we, we didn't have a lot of talent on that team. We pretty much went bare bones. And, you know, like, it, it was tough. It was tough to keep the guys up. And, you know, you're right. Everybody knew there were changes. Uh, you know, we didn't know what was going to take place, you know, with the franchise or anything like that. But we knew that there were changes coming and there was a pretty good chance there was going to be a work stoppage but all I tried to continue to do was to build my guys up believe in them and give them an opportunity to either sell themselves locally or sell themselves to somebody else in the National Hockey League and be forever grateful for that last 20 games Uh, I'll never forget it ending that streak 
in Arizona. I'll never forget it, Staggy. We're in Arizona, uh, and I woke up in the morning, and I turned on the TV, and I think the show on ESPN2 was on. I think it was Cold Pizza or a show like that. And who comes <laughs> And who comes on my TV screen but Double M, Mark Madden on my TV. And, again, I'm coaching. We had lost 17 – we had lost, we had not won in 17 games. I think we were like, oh, you know, oh, 10 and 7 or something like that. But So I see Mark on there, and now they're starting to put in – Mark's talking about the team and, you know, not winning in 17 and starting to put up a graphic of teams that had gone, you know, 23 and 25 games without winning and I'm just like oh my gosh like I'm just like you know like when's this gonna end you know and it's a beautiful day in Arizona and I went for a little bit of a walk and got to the rink and we played our I mean we played our plums off like we absolutely just played a really good game and I remember we got to overtime called the timeout I think we had a power play and drew up a play and can't remember who won the faceoff. Might have been Rico. Got the puck back to uh, to Dickie Tarnstrom and, and Rick Jackman, and somehow the puck ended up in the back of the net, and we stopped the streak. And it was like, I mean, it was I, I couldn't have been more happy for the for the guys. I mean, it just you know, like you, you keep building them up, you keep telling them it's going to get better, it's going to get better, and you keep tying or losing, and like it's demoralizing. There's no doubt about it. But since that point. You know, we went the last 20 games. I think we went 12, 5, and 3 the last 20 games of the regular season and actually had the second-best record of anybody in the National Hockey League those last 20 games. So uh, we stayed with it, didn't do anything more or anything less as the coaching staff, uh, Randy Hillier and, and Joey Mullen and, and, uh, and Lorne, Lauren Mollican. But, you know, the guys just stuck with it, and uh, we found a way to have a really good end to that season before the work stoppage the next year. I think Andy Kyoto got the win. He was in goal. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby Airy called him the Kyoto Dragon. That's it. That's He's still that, working. That might have been. Might have. Might have been itchy, scratchy Tabaracci. I was really going back <laughs> in the day there. Hey Enzo, Andy Kyoto still works for the Penguins now. Did you know that? He's working as a. I did de- not know that. Yeah, he's working yeah. in uh, working in a, as a development coach, a goalie for goaltending. Oh wow, that's yeah. awesome. That is awesome. Um, listen. Uh, you worked with Mike Lang. You also yeah. have worked now with Pat Foley, the voice of the Chicago Blackhawks, and you've worked with Doc Emmerich, and uh, among others. But uh, yeah. those are three pretty legendary figures. You could yeah. maybe, if you had a Mount Rushmore, I would say that uh, uh-huh. of hockey, they would certainly be up there. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm uh, I'm one lucky human. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, to sit in those to sit in those chairs, you know, to sit next to Mikey, uh, my first partner who helped me a lot. You know, we had so much fun together. He helped me a lot. He helped me become, a, no question, a better person, uh, a better man, and a better broadcaster. Uh, but to sit next to him, a legend in the Berg, as you know, Saggy, is not an easy job. Um, a very intimidating chair to sit in. And I've worked now with Pat Foley for uh, 10 years, and somebody that I grew up listening to uh, as a young Hockey fan in Chicago, listening to him to, the, in, to him and the great Dale Talon, who now is the general manager of the Florida Panthers. I mean, Dale and Pat. I mean, like that's, I mean, that's a shtick and a half, and they're legendary in Chicago. Yeah, they were so a very an, another intimidating chair to sit in uh, every night in Chicago, and then to get a chance to work with Doc uh, on the national broadcast and uh, just helped me so much. Uh, both on and off the booth, and uh, I'm just very, very lucky. And you got to be on your toes with all three of those guys, as you know, Saggy. I mean, you you got to be a good listener. Uh, you got to be prepared because all three have the ability to uh, jump off the highway for about two minutes. <laughs> and you got to be able to pick up the pieces and get us back on and get the rig back on the road. And uh, but I have been blessed to work next to a lot of great broadcasters but uh, when i when i think about my partners uh, certainly the three gentlemen you made mention of uh, mikey uh, pat and doc uh, very very lucky and all are tremendous people tremendous friends and have had a huge impact on the old check family and uh, have helped me uh, become the uh, the person and the broadcaster that i am uh, some uh, 
you know, I guess some 20 years later, which is uh, which is really hard to believe that I've been a part-time broadcaster and also a full-time broadcaster over the course of the last uh, 14 years. And I think it's really cool that you worked with those three because I think of those three as being so different stylistically. But what what's, what connects them is that they right. all have a, a distinctive style and sound to their voices. Each one right. has his own really distinctive style. They don't sound like anybody else. Or nobody, right. and, and any, or maybe people who try to sound like them, but sure. and it's, but it is interesting. They're all doing the same job, and yet they're completely right. different in the way they do it. It's so cool. Yeah, and 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 they all have the ability. And again, doing the thousands of games that I have with all three of them is is the ability, Saggy, and you know this from from wearing that hat as well yourself, is to be able to weave in and out of a story without losing the listener or the viewer, you know, to get in and to get out or to set up your partner. I mean, that's the one thing too. And and, and as you know, being one half of the booth is the ability to be able to communicate, talk to, not talk down to the people that are watching to be able to not talk down to your diehard, diehard hockey fans who know exactly you know what the uh, you know what the, uh, the the width of the blade of the stick is to somebody that might not know what a two line pass was or what you know what mm-hmm. a delayed offside is. So you know they all have that incredible ability to draw in your partner and to make them feel uh, like they're a part of it. And, and I think you know the one thing that is is very common with all three is the the, the genuine respect and the genuine feel of the game. Uh, you know, to, to know when to lay out, to know to know when to bring me in, and to know when it's Mikey time, it's Pat time, and it's Doc time, and then that's my opportunity to just keep my mouth shut. And look, I get an, I get a lot of texts. I get a lot of texts during games, and people sometimes will go, uh, "Are you working tonight, or what? Like, <laughs> are you going to say anything?" I'm like, "Hey, look, when the captain of the ship is, uh, you know, is is directing." Uh, you know, you, you let them go. And there's that certain time because you know, this. it's going to happen. It's happened to me. I think three times in my career is where I'm sitting there and you know, like you want to get in, you want to give your partner a quick little breather. And all of a sudden you start talking and all of a sudden you open up your big mouth. And next thing you know, the puck ends up in the back of the net. Like there's no worse feeling as a color guy to have that happen. It's going to happen because it's, it's live and you know, you're going to make mistakes, but uh, when it's their time, uh, you know, you, you let it go, and uh, and then you jump in when you can. But just I'm very lucky. It's honoring. It's intimidating. And uh, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world is to have sit next to those guys for uh, for all the years I've been a broadcaster. And real quick, Saggy, if I can, I'd like to tell a Mikey story if I can. Oh, absolutely. You know, Mikey, we, we always had we always had this, uh, you know, part of our uh, – part of this shtick uh, on our shows where, you know, we always say that Mikey would get stuck in the elevator, you know, when Mikey was a little late getting back to the broadcast booth. So Mikey always had to go stretch his legs and stretch his lungs every once in a while. People know what the hell I'm talking about. But <laughs> so we're, it happened two different times but with, with me anyways. And I'm sure with you, it probably happened more than that. You're much more versed of calling a game than I ever have been, but we were in the Island. And uh, Mark, uh, Mikey got stuck in the elevator, and puck drop is coming, and I'm looking over my shoulder, and I'm like, "Where in the hell is he? Like, I gotta start calling the game. Like, I gotta start calling the play by play." That happened to me so, too, by the way. I know. So sure enough, we're on the power play. The Penguins are on the power play, and I'm like, "Oh no, please, please just please don't score!" Like, I'm, well, what kind of goal call? You know, what kind of goal call am I gonna have? You know. <laughs> so sure enough, the puck ends up, I forget, I don't know if it ended up on Marty's stick or Yuri Slager's stick, but he gets it over to the commander, gets it over to Kobe, and Kobe goes top shelf in the island. So I got to call a goal, right? And I don't know what I said. I think I must have watched Sam Rosen night, night before because I said, it's a power play goal, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so, so thank God Mikey shows up, right? And he comes, yeah, he's late. You know, he's like a minute and a half late, like no big deal. I'm like, where the hell have you been? Uh, an elevator again? He goes, yep. You know, so so we come back and, you know, like five or six minutes into the period, Mikey, and I would read all the promos for the most part, you know, and I always enjoyed it. And I still do in Chicago, and sometimes I'll read some on NBC. But 
So this particular one, uh, we had our call of the game, and I didn't get to read it. Mikey goes, I got this one in the great Edzo, and he goes, let's go to the call of the game. So they, they replay my call. <laughs> I gotta I find that. Brutal. We gotta find that telecast. That's oh, gotta be yeah, somewhere. No, you don't. No, you, no, you don't. <laughs> and and Mikey goes after. He goes, Edzo, you got a little Sam Rosen in you. Huh? <laughs> going, okay. All right. Oh, that's so, so and then funny. the other time was in Florida, where Mikey got stuck in the stairwell, so he had to walk all he had to walk all the way down in sunrise, <laughs> work himself back to the elevator, and get up. And thank God there was no goal call. Uh, no goal that happened, so you had to hear my horrendous call. But uh, a lot of great stories with Mikey, but uh, I think that one, uh, the getting stuck in the yellow. Because I always had, even even today, Saggy, every once in a while while I'm traveling in the Berg, and I haven't been back, obviously, a lot because the last year of my you know my battle with, with stage 3 colon cancer, I didn't get it to the Berg last year, but I've only been in once this year. But, you know, over the time, I've, I've, every once in a while, somebody will go, hey, can you please tell me something? Well, what did you mean when uh, you'd always say that Mikey got stuck in the elevator? Like, what? What? <laughs> and the best part is, is, is an inside joke. And uh, you know, Mikey always, like I said, wanted to stretch his legs and stretch his lungs. And uh, we'll leave it at that. You know, Edzo, I got—I'll tell you this really quick story. We were in Washington, and Mike was having some stomach distress. You know, and sometimes you're you're broadcasting a game, and you got nature calls, and there's not a whole lot sure. you can do. I mean, you're you're, you're 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 stuck. That's a tough tough place to be. But anyway, yeah. Mikey's having some stomach problems that he's telling me, you know, I might I might have to leave, you know. So he, <laughs> so he he starts going, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. He starts singing that on the he's singing it on the air. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's gone and I'm calling the game in Washington for a while and he came back. Same thing. But hey, listen, you know, that happens, and I've talked to him about that. He said that's the worst. He, he he hates that when that happens, but it does. And when you're calling hockey games and you can't leave, there's a commercial break. You're there, man. Nobody, you know, there's not much you can do. Yeah, I, I and you better have a color guy who's willing yeah. to to jump in yeah, like you exactly. did. Yeah. yeah, I told him. I said, you know what, Mike, you, 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 you got to change your eating habits a little bit. You got to try to eat like, like a normal human. You got to be eating at four in the morning all the time. You know. So. Uh, so That's that was great. Stuff. I, I love Mikey. I, I, you know, I mean, I, anytime I see him, I got a chance to see him, uh, or the Penguins lightning game. And, uh, it's always good to see him. All, my day is always better. Anytime I get a chance to see him and, you know, we exchange texts and phone calls every once in a while and I always check in with Mad dog, the old two niner, my former roommate with the Rangers, by the way, uh, I don't know if people knew that I, I room with the old two niner and, uh, in New York when we were together with the Rangers back in the early 90s. But I always check in with Mad Dog to make sure that uh, Mikey's doing okay. So, yeah, some uh, some great times. And uh, I'll never forget the roast we had for him, too, Staggy. Remember the roast? Oh, the roast. That was a lot of fun. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, just, that's like that's it, like a thousand years. How old is this guy? He's older than a father. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of your health, how how you doing? Yeah, feeling good, Staggy. Yeah, it's been a year since I stopped my uh, almost a year, I guess. Uh, February 21st of last year is uh, when I uh, stopped my last chemo treatment and uh, got the clean bill of health in early March. And I'm uh, feeling good. I got my big scan coming up uh, in uh, in late February. And uh, But all my other tests that I've had are, are clean. I had a colonoscopy uh, six weeks ago, and everything was clean. The doctor told me it looks like a 21-year-old, so that's good. It's about the only thing I got going for me is that my colon looks like a 21-year-old. But <laughs> um, but I don't have to have one for another three years. So I recommend everybody out there, they've, let, they've actually lowered the national average age, the age for recommendation for a colonoscopy to 45 because when I was six, Saggy, it was 50 nationally. And somehow, some way, over my battle, uh, they lowered the age to 45 because the uptick in colon cancer has been very dramatic. So I would encourage anybody out there to make sure that they uh, raise their hand and go get checked out or somebody that they know to make sure they take them in because, uh, yeah, you know what? Literally, it's pretty shitty for a day uh, with the colonoscopy, but I would trade that in for anything uh, that have to go through six months of hell of chemotherapy. And anybody out there that's listening certainly knows what I'm talking about. You would trade in that one bad day for uh, not having to go through six months of hell because that's exactly what happened with me and my family. So I would encourage everybody out there to make sure they're getting looked after. But uh, I'm feeling good. And uh, the farther I get away from last year, Staggy, the better I feel. So um, uh, 
I'm uh, feeling good and uh, back to a normal schedule. And again, I'd be remiss if I did not thank you and all the great fans in Pittsburgh, the Penguin organization, all those hockey and horse racing fans out there that reached out to me, whether it was via text or a phone call or email or just uh, those prayers out there. It really helped a lot. And I really felt like, uh, you know, we did it. Uh, We beat this disease and uh, I don't think I could ever have done it. Uh, by myself and uh, my wife Diana was certainly the rock and my family and my friends and uh, the people in Chicago and the Blackhawks and everybody else but it was uh, quite the battle and uh, now my goal is to try to help keep one person from having to go through what I went through Staggy but sadly as we know it's going to touch somebody and hopefully somebody knows my story and, and knows the battles that I went through and hopefully I can help them get through their battle because I had a lot of people help me and uh, that's kind of my goal and I think that's kind of like my purpose in life now is to let people know my story and that one day I woke up and I couldn't go to the bathroom like I couldn't I couldn't go number two like I, I was clogged up and that was not normal for me and next thing you know some three days later I'm having a six-hour surgery removing 16 inches of my colon and a tumor the size of my fist that was blocking wow. my colon and you know uh, and then i'm taking six months of chemo and not knowing what the hell was going to happen and look i'm still scared uh but uh i'd like to think that uh, people hear my story and will go get checked out and stay away from it or hopefully inspire somebody to battle through because it it does test your will to live it tests your will to fight uh you question your mortality uh people ask me now saggy Going, having gone through that, um, do I look at things differently? And I can, I quite honestly can say is that I, I really don't. I, I think when I was going through that, Staggy, I was wondering, you know, like, am I going to see my kids continue to grow up? Am I going to continue to be with my wife of 30 years? Uh, am I going to be around for my son's wedding this past August? Um, but I think why I was in such peace was is that everybody in my so-called inner circle or the people that mean the most to me or the people that I come across. Like, Saggy, you know me fairly well. Is that I've always tried to make people feel good about themselves regardless of what the situation may be, whether you've won 10 or lost 10 or you've scored three or you're minus five. Like, I've, in hockey, I think the culture and everything, like, I've, I've always tried to – you know, the great trainers we had in the Berg or the trainers that I've had in my have always been an important part of my life. And I've always tried to make people feel good about themselves and try to brighten up their day regardless of what it is with my personality. And I think what I'm getting at was is that when I was sitting there wondering if I was going to make it is the people in my so-called inner circle always have known what they have meant to me. And my wife would always, you know, not get mad at me, but she didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to talk about it. But I always told my wife that, look, I just, I want you to know that you're the greatest thing and our kids are the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And I want you to know that, God forbid, if something that would happen to me. And I think when I was going through that battle, Staggy, I was at peace. And if it wasn't in the cards for me to make it, at least I was at peace knowing that the most important people in the game of hockey and in the, in the, in the, in, in horse racing, the people and the things that have given me so much of my life, they knew how much they meant to me. And I was at peace. And I think there's a lesson there to be learned in a lot of aspects, whether you're battling cancer or you're battling in a job or, you know, you're having family issues or mental health issues. I, I think that somebody could take from from that and that's why i want to try to be so proactive on people knowing my story and again i know there are people a lot worse off and will continue to be way worse off than eddie Olchek. i understand that but if i could help one person stay away from it deal with it by knowing my story then it was well worth me spending time on it and i appreciate you giving me the chance to do that because maybe out there staggy we're helping one person uh, move along in their life, and hopefully they can be better off from knowing my story and and help somebody along as well. Well, I'll tell you, I I, I you know I think you know uh, everybody who's ever had a chance to work with you or get to know you at all, and you know traveling with you uh, it was just so much fun, and you're always such a joy to be around, Edzo, and you're really one of the great people in sports uh, I've ever come across, and I know anybody who's 
worked with you and gotten to know you here in the Berg would say the same thing. Uh, I look forward to the book. When, when, when are you going to put it out? Well, I think we're getting pretty darn close here, Staggy. I think uh, we're looking maybe for uh, for November of this year, and uh, it will be a lot about obviously my battles, uh, what I just went through. Because we want to, I want it to be more than just a hockey book. I, I want it to be a a book about you know my battles and my life. And look, uh, it, it's funny, and I, I guess I, I just tease it a little bit. Is like my whole life, Staggy. I always had people telling me that I, I, I would not accomplish certain things. When I was a kid growing up in Chicago, you know, I had people tell me, oh, you'll never make it to the NHL because you're American-born and you're from Chicago. I had people tell me that I wouldn't make the U.S. Olympic hockey team when I was 16 years old back in 1984 after the, the, you know, the miracle on ice in Lake Placid in 1980. Everybody told me I wouldn't make it because I was too young. Uh, there were some people that told me that I would listen to me closely. Some people told me that I would eat my way out of the National Hockey League. Now, I asked you, Staggy, what's wrong with a hungry hockey player, right? We love hungry hockey You're a hungry human. That's it, a hungry human. We love hungry humans. And, you know, and and people would tell me that I would never be the lead analyst on, you know, American television uh, as an American-born broadcaster because it's always been Canadian-bred and born broadcasters that would come down to the States and, and play here and, and be the lead broadcaster. So my whole life, I always had people telling me that I couldn't do things. And I didn't do those things or achieve those things to prove people wrong. I did them because I felt that I could and I wanted to. But the interesting thing, Staggy, to tie it all in, is that besides a couple of people on social media uh, that wanted to see me six feet under, I did not have one person tell me that I was not going to beat this disease. And that to me is, is, is really kind of coming full circle. So we're going to touch on my battle. We're going to touch on where I came from. There's going to be a lot of hockey stories in there. There's going to be a few horse racing and gambling stories and some of the great characters that I've either room with or uh, worked with. Of course, Mikey will be a big part of that. The great Mike Lang, my time coaching in the Berg and what it was like to be around Sidney Crosby. So uh, we're getting close to the end. So it's very exciting. Uh, we're trying to figure out the, uh, some pictures, and uh, as one of my former teammates told me, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of crayons with that book. All right, take it easy. What's wrong with crayons and books, right? What's wrong with a good coloring book every once in a while, Staggy? So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I was a little hesitant to begin with, um, but uh, I think it's important for me, especially through my battle of cancer, to uh, to tell this story, share it, and uh, try to make it more than just a hockey book, uh, kind of the the life and times of, uh, of a young kid coming from Chicago and uh, kind of defining defining, uh, defining the odds and uh, defeating the odds and uh, getting to where I am today. Hey, yeah, defining the odds. You're good at that, too. Hey, Edzo, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it so much. And uh, all the best to you. Look forward to watching you uh, the rest of the year on NBC. Okay. Always great being with you, Saggy. Thanks, pal. Appreciate it. Shaped by the energy and opportunity of downtown Pittsburgh, the Point Park University experience is unlike any other. It's a more active, more engaged, more professional education. Ideally located, that's the point. Point Park University. Learn more at pointpark.edu. Can't wait to read the book, The Life and Times of One Eddie Olchek, Edzo, who has made such a big impact here in Pittsburgh, even though he's from Chicago, Illinois. Our thanks to Edzo once again, and I hope you've enjoyed. It's a great day for Hockey Talk with Eddie Olchek. I'm Paul Steigerwald, and we'll talk to you next time.